1: welcome to terry's mysterious moments season three thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd the weird the strange hope you'll enjoy it now on with the show this is Terry from Texas with another Terry's Mysterious Moments. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. Imagine if you will, you were in the fields of Belgium during the Second World War. It is actually an RAF airfield, so airplanes landing or taking off won't be that unusual until today. The date is November twenty-first, 1944. The drone of heavy motors reaches the ears of the men on the field, and as they look up, they see a lone American B-17 Flying Fortress lumbering in low to the ground, wheels down in the landing position. It sinks to the ground, and although a bit bumpy, One wing dipped into the ground and stopped one propeller. It lands and slowly rolls, or is that taxis, up to a spot very near one of the gunnery positions on the field. One of the propellers is crumpled and has stopped, but the other three keep running. The bomber comes to a full stop. The crew at the airbase awaits, not knowing what's going on. No plane was scheduled to come in, but nobody is seen exiting the plane. Twenty minutes after the B-17 landed, Major John V. Crisp arrived at the site. The propellers continued whirring, but even after this amount of time, nobody had debarked from the plane. As emergency crews cautiously climbed aboard and looked around, because this could have been a German trap, you see, to their shock and surprise, they found no one inside. Crisp went into the plane and apprehensively looked around. There was absolutely no one in there. However, there were signs of recent occupation. After some trial and error manipulations, Crisp successfully managed to shut the remaining engines down. Crisp wrote, I then went into the navigator's station. The bomber's log was lying open on the navigator's desk and written in the log, were these last words, bad flack. During our search of the fuselage, we found parachutes neatly wrapped, about 12 of them, and ready to clip on. In the fuselage, there were several flying jackets with their distinctive fur collars laying together with a few chocolate bars, partially eaten in some instances. And this only added to the mystery and made the whereabouts of the crew even more inexplicable. In the perspex or plexiglass nose of the B-17, the Sperry sight remained totally intact with its cover sitting neatly beside it. Also on the navigator's desk was the daily code book. This code book provided the crew with identifying colors and letters of the day for communication purposes and also were found copies of radio communications in a written pilot's log. In the log, the pilot wrote that the bomber was severely damaged and the crew was badly injured. But the flying fortress was not damaged at all, and as impossible as it may seem, the RAF crew saw the plane flying and watched it land. They could never have imagined that the bomber was doing this unmanned. The 8th Air Force Service Command, headquartered in Belgium, sent a crew of service personnel to investigate. When they checked the bomber's serial number, they found out that the B-17 belonged to the U.S. 91st bomber group. And astonishingly, the crew is already at their base in England. Amazingly, the story of this Phantom B-17 comes to light. Lieutenant Harold R. DeBolt with the 401st squadron was assigned to B-17G number 43-38545 from the 324th Squadron for DeBolt's 33rd mission. The plane was so new it didn't have a name yet. It was only the third mission for this plane. The B-17 Flying Fortress was on a mission to the Mersburg oil targets, including the Luna Oil Refinery. The bomber developed trouble just before reaching the target area. The weather was terrible, with solid clouds everywhere as the mission proceeded. Most things had been routine until they turned on the bomb run. The formation tended to slow up in the turn, and with bomb bay doors open, DeBolt's aircraft stalled and dropped out of formation. At this instant, he was attacked by enemy fighters and also began the run through a very heavy and accurate flak barrage. This caused the aircraft to fall further out of formation. The B-17 wasn't able to stay at the same altitude as the other bombers in the group and in addition, the bomb racks were malfunctioning. About this time, the whole ship took the blast from a flak burst just below the bomb bays and the plane was badly damaged. The explosion caused the bombs to drop out and number two and number three engines also went out. Number two was out completely and number three was windmilling, which means simply spinning in the wind, and causing undue vibration throughout the craft. We had taken a direct hit in the bomb base, said pilot Harold DeBolt, and for the life of me I don't know why the bombs didn't blow up. With bad weather coming and the engines having problems bolt turned and headed for England. The B-17 obviously was not going to make it back to eastern England, to the East Anglia landing zone, so he changed his mind. He set his coordinates for Brussels. The pilot ordered the crew to ditch all loose equipment and supplies, so the crew began jettisoning all surplus equipment in an effort to lighten the fortress. It was at this time that the second engine stopped. The plane was losing altitude and was turned to a heading of 270 degrees west for friendly lines. The crew stayed with the plane as long as they could, and when it was down to 2,000 feet, DeBolt ordered the crew to bail out while he was putting the B-17 on automatic pilot. He was the last one to leave the plane. All chutes opened, the B-17 bomber crew all landed safely, and believe it or not, The men were picked up by British infantrymen soon after landing. The damaged fortress continued onward, however, losing altitude and remaining in a perfect landing attitude. The fortress mysteriously made a perfect three-point landing in a field. It sat there with engines still running, undamaged, in an open field near Liege, Belgium. The landing was in a flat strip area near a British army encampment. What the crew thought had happened after they jumped was that somehow the engine trouble cleared up and the reliably designed stable B-17 flew itself. The failing engines, however, couldn't sustain altitude and the flying fortress came down as described by the British gun crew at the airbase. To an uneducated eye. The B-17 looked as though it was undamaged, and what was thought to be the flight crew's parachutes were probably additional chute packs. Throughout the war, there were several other accounts of B-17s that flew without a pilot, but the Phantom Flying Fortress was the only one that landed successfully, more or less intact by itself. The Stars and Stripes published the story the next day and called bolt's B-17 a ghost ship or the Phantom Fort. Here's a factoid for you. Information on B 17 number 338545401LLJ was added to the Air Force inventory on 8, 1844. On 9, 1844, it arrived overseas. On 112144, it failed to return. It landed on the continent in friendly territory, and was salvaged. Lieutenant Harold DeBolt and nine crewmen returned to duty. That would be kind of weird to watch a plane come in and land and realize there's no one on board, wouldn't it? The Lady Be Good, B24 Liberator, still waiting for help still praying. It's one of the last entries in the diary of Lieutenant Robert F. Toner, co-pilot of the consolidated B-24D known as Lady B. Good. Lady B. Good was a USAAF B-24D liberator that disappeared without a trace on its first combat mission during World War II. The plane, which was from the 376th Bomb Group, was believed to have been lost with its nine-man crew in the Mediterranean while returning to its base in Libya following a bombing raid on Naples on April 4, 1943. But the wreck wasn't discovered until 1958. In Libya, by an exploration team employed by Darcy Oil Company, which is now British Petroleum and no human remains were discovered at the crash site, which increased the mystery. When members of a follow-up expedition in 1959 found water still fresh enough to drink, coffee that still had coffee flavor, machine guns and radios still in working order, the aircraft's disappearance and subsequent recovery captivated the public, and legends sprang up regarding the fate of the aircraft and crew. The wreck was accidentally discovered 440 miles inland in the Libyan desert by an oil exploration team on November 8, 1958. Investigations concluded that the first time, which means all new, air crew failed to realize they had overflown the airbase in a sandstorm. After continuing to fly south into the desert for many hours, the crew bailed out when the plane's fuel ran out. The survivors then died in the desert trying to walk to safety. All but one of the crew's remains were recovered between February and August of nineteen sixty. The wreckage of the Lady Be Good was taken to a Libyan Air Force base after being removed from the crash site in August of nineteen ninety four. The history of Lady Be Good was the topic of a recent talk at the National Air and Space Museum given by Roger Connor of the Aeronautics Department. Connor discussed the history of the aircraft's discovery and the fate of the crew who bailed out before the crash. The remains of eight of the nine airmen were recovered at varying distances from the crash site. They survived eight days in the desert with virtually no supplies. Toner's diary, which chronicles their last days, was found in his pocket. In a note to Halloween, Connor covered some of the more fanciful legends about the crew, one of which has them captured by Bedouins and enslaved, and recounted rumors that parts from the crashed B-24 were installed in other aircraft, which then also mysteriously crashed. A nice story, but not true. A couple of items from Lady Be Good are in the museum's collection, including the aircraft's Directional gyro, an artificial horizon, and its turn bank indicator. In 1943, the Lady B. Good was a new Liberator bomber that had just been assigned to the 514th Bomb Squadron on March 25th. The squadron was part of the 376th Bombardment Group Heavy based at Solouk Field in Soluk in Libya. The plane, which had the Air Force serial number 41. Dash 24301 had the group identification number 64 stencil painted on its nose. Its given name, Lady B. Good, was hand painted on the starboard front side of the Ford fuselage. The Lady B. Good crew were also new as they had only arrived in Libya a week before on March eighteenth. On their first mission together, they would be flying one of the 25 B-24s assigned to bomb the harbor of Naples late in the afternoon of April 4th in a two-part attack. A flight of 12 B-24s would go first, followed by a second wave of 13 planes, including the Lady B. Good. After the attack, all planes were expected to return to their bases in North Africa. The crew of the Lady B. Good on the Naples mission were 1st Lieutenant William J. Hatton, pilot from Whitestone, New York, Second Lieutenant Robert F. Toner, co-pilot, North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Second Lieutenant D. P. Hayes, navigator, from Lee Summit, Missouri. Second Lieutenant John S. Orovcuff, bombardier, from Cleveland, Ohio. Tech Sergeant Harold J. Ripslinger, flight engineer, from Saginaw, Michigan. Tech Sergeant Robert E. Lamotte, radio operator, Lake Linden, Michigan.
0: In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We're proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music, and we celebrate. Every last ray of sun. Live, Boligua.
1: Staff Sergeant Guy Shelley, Gunner, New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. Staff Sergeant Vernon Moore, Gunner, New Boston, Ohio. And Staff Sergeant Samuel Adams, Gunner, Eureka, Illinois. The plane, which was one of the last to depart, took off from Solo Airfield near Benghazi not long after 3 p.m. Almost immediately High winds and obscured visibility prevented it from joining the main bomber formation, so it continued the mission on its own. The sandstorm led to nine B-24s returning to Solu, leaving four aircraft to continue the operation. But when the Lady Be Good arrived over Naples at 7.50 p.m., at 24,900 feet, poor visibility was obscuring the primary target. Two B-24s attacked their secondary target on the return trip, while the other two aircraft dumped their bombs into the Mediterranean to reduce weight and save fuel. Lady B Good flew back alone from Italy on its return trip to its home base in Libya. At 12.12 AM, the pilot, Lieutenant Hatton, radioed to say his automatic direction finder was not working and asked for a location of the base. The plane apparently overflew its base, failing to see the flares fired to attract its attention. It continued into the interior of North Africa, deeper into the Sahara Desert, for the next two hours. At 2 a.m., the crew parachuted to the ground as the abandoned Lady Be Good flew a further 16 miles before it crash-landed in the Calanchio Sand Sea. A subsequent search and rescue mission from Soluk Air Base failed to find any trace of the aircraft or its crew. The disappearance of the Lady Be Good became a mystery. Discovery of the wreckage in 1958. After the crew abandoned the aircraft, it continued flying southward. The mostly intact wreckage and evidence showing that one engine was still operating at the time of impact suggest the aircraft gradually lost altitude and in a very shallow descent reached the flat, open desert floor and landed on its belly. The first reported sighting of the crash site was on November 9, 1958 by a British oil exploration team working for British Petroleum in the northeast of Libya's Kufra district. The team contacted authorities at Wheelus Air Base. Wheelus Air Force Base was located in Libya on the shore of Tripoli. No attempt was made to examine the aircraft as no records existed of any plane believed to have been lost in the area. The location of the wreckage was marked on maps to be used by oil prospecting teams that were due to set out to explore the Colanchio Sand Sea the next year. On February 27, 1959, British oil surveyor Gordon Bowerman and British geologists Donald Sheridan and John Martin spotted the wreckage 440 miles southeast of Soluch, following up the first sighting from the air on May 16, 1958, by the crew of a Silver City Airways Dakota piloted by Captain Alan Frost and another on June 15. A recovery team made initial trips from Wheelis Air Base to the crash site on May 26, 1959. Although the plane was broken into two pieces, it was immaculately preserved with functioning machine guns, a working radio, and some supplies of food and water. A thermos of tea was found to be drinkable. No human remains were found on board the aircraft, nor in the surrounding crash site, nor were parachutes found. Evidence aboard the plane indicated that the men had bailed out. Records in the log of Navigator Lieutenant Hayes, who was on his very first combat mission, ended at Naples. Crew remains in 1960. In February of 1960, the United States Army conducted a formal search of the area for the remains of the crew. Five were found. They were Hatton, Toner, Hayes, Lamott, and Adams. On February 11th the team concluded that other bodies were likely buried beneath sand dunes after finding evidence that at least three of the surviving crew members had continued walking northward. With the news that five bodies had been recovered, the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Army started an expanded search called Operation Climax in May of 1960. The joint operation used a U.S. Air Force C-130 cargo plane and two Army Bell H-13 helicopters. The next body was found by a British Petroleum Exploration crew. They found the remains of Staff Sergeant Shelley on May 12, 1960, 24 miles northwest of the recovered five bodies. A U.S. helicopter found Technical Sergeant Ripslinger on May 17, 1960. His remains were located 26 miles northwest of Shelley, over 200 miles from the crash site, but still 99 miles from Soluk Air Base. These two bodies were the only ones found during Operation Climax. Another British Petroleum Oil Exploration crew discovered the remains of 2nd Lieutenant Worovka in August of 1960. His body was then recovered by the US Air Force. The only crewman not to be found was the last gunner, Staff Sergeant Moore. Subsequent examinations of the remains and personal items showed that eight of the nine airmen managed to parachute safely down to the desert from the aircraft. They then located each other by firing their revolvers and signal flares into the air. The ninth crewman, Bombardier Lieutenant John Worovka, was not found. Unknown to the survivors, it appears that his parachute only partially opened and he died from the fall. A diary recovered from the pocket of co-pilot Robert Toner recorded the crew's suffering on the walk northward. It indicated none of the men were aware they had been flying overland when they bailed out or were 400 miles inland. Speculation concludes the empty desert floor in the darkness may have appeared like open sea. The eight surviving crew members walked north because they believed they were fairly close to the Mediterranean coast. As they walked, the group left behind footwear, parachute scrap, May West vests, and other items as markers to show searchers their path. The diary also says the group survived for eight days in the desert with only a single canteen of water to share. After walking 81 miles from the crash site, the location of the remains of the five airmen shows they had waited behind while the other three, Shelley, Ripslinger, and Moore, set off north to try to find help. The body of Staff Sergeant Shelley was found 20 miles away, while 27 miles further on were the remains of Sergeant Ripslinger. The body of Staff Sergeant Moore was never officially found, However, his remains may have been recovered and buried by a desert patrol of the British Army in 1953. As they were unaware that any Allied aircrews were missing in the area, the human remains were recorded but then buried, without further investigation. The official report in the American Graves Registration states, The aircraft flew on a 150-degree course toward Benina Airfield. The craft radioed for a directional reading from the HF-DF station at Benina and received a reading of 330 degrees from Benina. The actions of the pilot in flying 440 miles into the desert indicate the navigator probably took a reciprocal reading off the back of the radio directional loop antenna from a position beyond and south of Benina, but on course. The pilot flew into the desert, thinking he was still over the Mediterranean and on his way to Bernina. The navigator on the Lady Be Good thought he was flying on a direct path from Naples to Benghazi. But the base's radio direction finder only had a single loop antenna, as the plane's direction finder could not distinguish between a signal in front of or behind the aircraft. There was no way to identify reciprocal readings. The same bearing would be returned whether the plane was heading inbound from the Med or outbound. The crew might have survived if they had known their actual location. If they had headed south the same distance they had walked north, the group might have reached the oasis of Wadi Zegun. After the crew bailed out, Lady Be Good continued flying south for 16 miles before coming to land and there also was also a chance that the crew might have found the aircraft's relatively intact wreckage with its meager water and food supplies. The aircraft's working radio could have been used to call for help. After the Lady B. Good was identified, some parts of the plane were returned to the United States for evaluation, while the rest of the wreckage remained. In August of 1994, the remains of the craft were recovered by a team led by Dr. Fadel Ali Mohammed, and taken to a Libyan military base in parts in Tobruk for safekeeping. They are now stored at Jamal Abul Nasser Air Force Base in Libya. Over the years, pieces of the plane were stripped by souvenir hunters. Today, parts can be seen at the National Air Museum of the United States Air Force. A propeller can be seen in front of the village hall in Lake Linden, the home of Robert E. Lamont. The Army U.S. Army Quartermaster Museum at Fort Lee, Virginia, has a collection of personal items such as watches, silk survival maps, and flight clothing from the crew members who were recovered. Several of these items were on display. An altimeter and manifold pressure gauge were salvaged from the plane in 1963 by Airman Second Class Ron Pike, and are on display at the Marchfield Air Museum just south of Riverside, California. A Royal Air Force team visited the site in 1968 and hauled away components, including an engine which was later donated to the U.S. Air Force for evaluation by the McDonnell Douglas Company. Although the ghostly matter of reused parts of the Lady Be Good causing problems makes for a good chilling story, the stories are mostly untrue. But these are the tales of some of the reused parts. After some parts were salvaged from the Lady Be Good and technically evaluated, they were reused in other planes belonging to the American military. However, some planes that received these spares developed unexpected problems. A C-54 had several autosend transmitters from the Lady Be Good installed, had to throw cargo overboard, to land safely because of propeller difficulties. A C-47 that received a radio receiver crashed into the Mediterranean. A U.S. Army de Havilland Canada DHC-3 Otter with an armrest from the bomber crashed into the Gulf of Sidra. Only a few traces of the plane washed ashore, and one of them was the armrest from the Lady Be Good. There have been portrayals of Lady Be Good's flight on TV and in movies. An episode of The Twilight Zone from 1960, called King 9 Will Not Return, told the story of a B-25 Mitchell crew member finding himself alone with the wreckage of his plane in the desert. In the episode, the marker on the grave of a member of the crew is dated 5 April 1943, the day on which Lady Be Good was lost. Although the wreckage of the King-9 shown in the production is a smaller and lighter B-25 medium bomber, a newspaper picture in the episode is the actual Lady Be Good B-24 heavy bomber. The Flight of the Phoenix, a 1964 novel by Elliston Trevor about a group of oil workers who are forced to survive in a desert when their cargo plane crashes. The novel was the subject of a 1965 film and a 2004 film remake of the same name. Personally, I can't find much about these two films, which harken back to The Lady Be Good, but that's my point of view. Soul Survivor, which is a 1970 made-for-TV movie about the ghost crew of The Home Run. Again, a B-25 Mitchell medium bomber, not a B-24 Heavy, that crashed in the Libyan desert. As a B-25, rather than the larger, longer, heavy bomber of the B-24 Liberator, Lady Be Good, the plane in this film, only made it 300 miles inland. Now, I have this movie, and I remember when it came out because I watched it on TV, when it originally aired, and I have to say, it's one of the most chilling movies that I have ever seen. Well, that's it for this week. I want to thank you for being along with me for this ride. Hope you enjoyed the stories. They're not particularly ghostly, but they've got some oddness to them. And that's what I revel in is oddness. I love oddness. I love strangeness. Anyway, remember, on Mondays, you listen to Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Tuesdays, you listen to Aaron's Horror Show. Wednesdays, you listen to... Terry's Mysterious Moments. On alternating Thursdays, you listen to the Sandman Lullaby. And on Fridays, first of the month, I think it is, we have two new video shows. Remember also, we're all over podcast catchers. But you can also download the RPA app from your app store, whether it be Apple or Android. Download it, uh, install it, and you can open it up and find our shows right off the bat without having to search for them. Well, that's all I have for this week. Thank you for being along, and I appreciate you listening. Have a good week, everybody.